Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Carrie O'Driscoll, who is simply a great and dedicated person wanting to make the world a better place. That's how I see her. Carrie has a background in biology and philosophy, and she worked in various healthcare settings, then realized writing was so much her passion. So Carrie has a blog, and she is the author of a very important book, One Teenager at a Time, Developing Self-Awareness and Critical Thinking in Adolescence. Parents, educators, all of us, concerned for their future and our future, let's just meet Carrie and learn more. Carrie O'Driscoll, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. Well, it's really me who is feeling very excited about this because I love the work that you're doing. There is just such a great need for it. So first of all, thank you. For Thank do- you. <laughs> and now we're going to, you know, open it up to more of our listeners. Perhaps some are aware. If they're not, we certainly want them to be aware of the work that you're doing with youth. You're working with high school students predominantly, right? Middle and high school, yes. And so we have this wonderful book, One Teenager at a Time, Developing Self-Awareness and Critical Thinking in Adolescence. So that's that's a lot. That's something that each of us, even as adults, might say, I need to know that. Absolutely. I agree. And I think that that's part of the reason that I was motivated to do this work is because I think that it's work that we haven't focused on in a really intentional way for generations of people. And um, knowing the impact that we can make on behavior patterns and thought patterns and the way that people feel about themselves during those adolescent years and what the ripple effects are into adulthood, it's really, really exciting to me, the possibilities of this kind of work. And there has been this void, really, in the educational system where it should exist for everything else to really use that as its foundation. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, that's not to diss the educational system. I think we tend to do this thing where we have siloed ourselves, where there's this sense that this set of skills belongs to the schools and then this set of skills belongs to a family. And never the twain shall meet, but they rely on each other. And unfortunately, what we know is that that forces kids to silo themselves or code switch and be or try to be different people at school than they are at home. Um, and that's, that's not how learning takes place. Learning takes place in relationship. Learning takes place when we feel safe and comfortable and curious and excited. And if we're not creating those kinds of environments at school as well as at home, then we're not optimizing the educational opportunities for anybody. And so here is the SELF project. You're located, you live here in the Puget Sound area. So has it been more of kind of your uh, nurturing area to get this off the ground? Or is it that proverbial profit isn't recognized in their own land? Um, You know, I started out, um, both of my daughters went to the Seattle Girls School. and, And so that was really my incubator, the educators there were super open to the work that I was doing. And um, I was really able to work with a lot of the students there on a really informal basis. They were basically the guinea pigs for a lot of the work in One Teenager at a Time. 
I spent hours in carpool with them and chaperoned weekend camping trips and, you know, things like that. Um, But that said, the public education system really anywhere has is a difficult nut to crack. Um, So I've done work with Seattle's Recovery School, which is an alternative public high school on Queen Anne for students who are struggling with addiction issues. Um, I've done work with a private middle and high school in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I mean, I'll go wherever people will have me because the message to me is so important and vital to get out. Um, And I am kind of a jack of all trades. So I do mindful parenting coaching as well for parents of adolescents. And I've definitely done some of that in the Puget Sound area. I'm doing a class at East West Bookshop in January for parents and caregivers and coaches and mentors of teenagers around mindfulness and intentional relationship building. Um, so I'll I'll go wherever people will have me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, a great place to be because already they are looking, searching, receptive. Exactly. And I think that that, for me, has been the biggest challenge with public schools is We need to have a culture shift because I can train educators to deliver this material in a way that's effective. But if they are not supported by their building leaders, if there isn't a school culture that really embraces that, if the parents are sort of on the fence about it, or if the educator themselves are like, fine, I'll do this, but I don't really believe in it, then it's not going to go anywhere. Because here's the thing. One of the things I love the most about teenagers is they know if you're not being genuine, they can sniff out BS a mile away. And so if you're someone up there who's just sort of half-heartedly delivering content or you're doing it because you feel like you have to, they're not going to respond to it. So I think the culture shift is starting to happen. We're starting to talk more and more about social-emotional health in schools But we're not quite there yet. We're not willing to put money into it. We're not willing to put professional development time into it. We're not willing to really, really embrace that, I think. So it's a challenge. So I'm hoping that with our conversation this morning, we're going to touch a few listening ears and open hearts. And, you know, maybe the podcast is going to reach out, you know, ripple out further because I've... I really believe this is such fundamental work that all the other education that goes on mm-hmm. in many cases is for naught, or we see so much failure going on with kids, and, and that is such a loss. I mean, it, it's really uh, devastating to see that loss. Yeah, I agree. I mean, kids are going to forget some of the concrete things. You know, not everybody's going to remember the dates of all the battles in World War II. You know, they're not necessarily going to remember that really comprehensive calculus formula you told them, but they are going to remember what lit them on fire, what made them curious to seek more information. They're going to remember which relationships were important to them and who held them up and who was an ally. And so like those kids can always, you know, learn those finite skills later in life. But these other skills that really are foundational and grounding to who we are as human beings and how we move through the world. There's not necessarily only one window of time for that, but this is the most critical period in human development when we can have the biggest effect on those kinds of things. 
Yes, that personal development, we're then not wasting a lot of time. I think I was in my later 20s when I came to a greater awareness. I knew I was looking for something to kind of, you know, be that foundation. Mm -hmm. But it takes some searching. If we can provide it as part of a curriculum, uh, it's just, you know, putting our youth so much further ahead. Yeah, I agree. And it's also capitalizing on the kinds of things that are actually happening within adolescent development at the time, right? They're, it's when they're starting to play with different identities. It's when they're trying on different ways of being in the world. They're driven to be social and create new relationships. And so if we can help them and capitalize on that to, to understand what kinds of relationships are healthy and which ones are, you know, what it means to be in a trusting relationship, what it means to believe in yourself. Um, how, how do you know if this identity you're trying on right now is actually you? I mean, those are, those are really foundational things that trip people up in their tw- late 20s and 30s and 40s, you know. Um, yes. And I think if we can give them that grounding now, we're going to be way ahead of the game. And so we're approaching this from the educational system, which, I mean, that is an ideal place for it. But if that's not the case, this wonderful book that you have written for us, Carrie, is something parents can use and be working uh, with it in the family. Perhaps then it percolates up out to the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. to the school, ultimately. Right. Absolutely. Like I said, you know, I did this during the carpool commute. You know, I had a captive audience. I brought snacks and I had a captive audience for about 30 or 40 minutes. And the thing that I love about this book is that it can be playful and fun. You know, there isn't this sort of rigid step by step, do this, then do this, then do this. It's really driven by the youth themselves, the conversations are going to go in the directions that they want them to go in and can often be surprising to the adults. There was more than once where I would say, hey, guys, let's talk about this. And they would say, no, we're more interested in talking about this thing that's tangential to that. Okay, cool. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, again, ultimately, we need to be treating kids as whole people. And so if we can be doing this work at home and in the schools, then I think we're really on to something. Absolutely. So the book, let's mention that, is available definitely at all of our favorite book sources, correct? It is. It's available online as well through the publisher. The publisher is Rowan and Littlefield. Um, you can find a link to it on the website for The Self Project, which is theselfproject.com. Um and, and I do think that it's something that is useful for lots of different people, parents, coaches, mentors. You know, um, there are lots of concrete, actionable things that you can do in there to really help kids understand that you care about them and want to be in relationship with them and have some pretty enlightening conversations with them. Right. So your daughters were adolescent at the time that you began before writing the book when you were in the process of creating this, right? Yes. And I never really meant, I never set out to write a book. Um, you know, my my background is um, biology and chemistry and also philosophy. I worked with the state mental health division in their children's long-term inpatient psychiatric program for several years. 
Um, I've always really cared about and advocated for children and tried to help raise their voices. And I started writing these or, or working on these different things because I saw the gaps. Even, you know, as amazing and wonderful as Seattle Girls School is, there were there were things that the girls really wanted to dig into more or things they were struggling with relationship-wise with their peers. And um, so I started looking at it. I was also studying mindfulness and nonviolent communication at the time. And, and so I really started to write it and weave those three things together in a way that I thought was um, really going to spark the curiosity of the kids. And it turned out it did. You mentioned mindfulness as one of the elements, mm-hmm. which I feel is really one of those fundamental pieces of, of our life. It may seem like a vague notion to some people. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I think it's kind of, you know, it was a buzzword for a really long time. And I do think that there are some people who roll their eyes when they hear it and think, you know, woo-woo, I'm not going to sit cross-legged on the floor and, you know, close my eyes and think for five minutes. Um I really think of mindfulness as a tool to getting to self-awareness. You know, for me, you don't you don't have to sit and meditate if you don't want to. Mindfulness is more about making the connection between what's happening in the external world and what's happening inside you. And we have so many of these knee-jerk reactions that we make, um, so many things that another buzzword trigger us. Um, And if we can give ourselves a little break from the stimulus and our reaction, then we can learn a lot in that space. We can learn a lot about ourselves. We can learn a lot about our assumptions, about our internal biases, about um, the kinds of things that are really destructive for us that are habitual. And so for me, mindfulness is just a really great thing because it it allows me to sort of step back and get curious. Wow, why did that bug me so much? Why why did I instantly feel that way? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's just that fight or flight, you know, response that's bypassing your your prefrontal cortex. You're not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But if we can re-engage the thinking part of our brain, then um, I think we have much more positive interactions with other people. And I think we end up really having a much higher regard for ourselves as well. And if we start this at a young age, it's great because it's it's a habit of being aware. Or perhaps we just don't even build up some of those kind of uh, resistances that call, you know are, get triggered. Right. Absolutely. I mean, again, during the adolescent years, which which for me in this book and really in research, we're starting to understand is like between 10 and 25 years old. So that's a huge period of time. The brain development is astonishing. We are pruning away neural pathways that that our brain decides aren't important anymore. And then we're creating sort of super highways for different things in a way so that we can be super efficient by the time our brain is fully developed. Mm -hmm. If we can really intentionally use mindfulness to direct which superhighways are being built and which ones aren't, then we're doing something that's really impactful. So especially if you're someone who suffered trauma 
in what you know in a myriad of different ways mm-hmm. you're going to have a huge fight or flight reaction to lots of different kinds of things if we can start to use mindfulness to understand what those triggers are and then figure out how to make ourselves feel safe or how to align ourselves with the people who can really help us mm-hmm. and then we're creating neural pathways that say wow, this really scary thing just happened. Oh, wait, it's not life or death. Okay, who are my avenues to ask for help? How do I do that? How do I explain, wow, I'm kind of in crisis right now and I need a minute to calm down, as opposed to, you know, punching somebody or running to a corner to curl up in a ball. Because the more we do those kinds of things reactively, the bigger that superhighway gets and the harder it is to undo when we get older in like anger management or therapy or different things. Right. Yes. So rather than have to do the after work, let's mm-hmm. do it now You know, as we are, you know, we have our children or we have our students and we want to engage mm-hmm. them and give them the best beginning for their life. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And you've had just this amazing experience throughout your life, all of this, I can see these pieces connecting together, like mm-hmm. the pieces of a puzzle and, you know, your work in, in mental health, which I think is a critical area because we're seeing so many issues with um, with adolescents, but with the young adults mm-hmm. and you know, on and on. But still, that's a critical piece. And you've had that awareness. You're coming to us with a great, this great, great project, the Self Project, and with this book that can help parents and educators really help youth. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that I'm the most excited about is, you know, not only are we talking about developing self-awareness and critical thinking in adolescence, but but I'm acknowledging in this book that what it takes to do that is for you as an adult to have some self-awareness and critical thinking skills, right? So there's there are ways that we as parents and coaches and mentors and teachers can examine our own biases and knee-jerk reactions in order to be way more intentional about creating relationships with teenagers. And and it's not easy, right? I mean, there are times I, my daughters are 17 and 19 now, um, and I will absolutely admit to times when something happened and I had no self-awareness and I was unable to employ that mindfulness of finding the space. And I started to react and it was, my mom or my dad in my head that was, you know, reacting, right? I, it's difficult and challenging. But if I if I can step back and take that moment and say, what is it that I'm trying to do here? Oh, wait, I'm really scared. That really scared me. Okay, I'm going to put my fear over here. And if my intent is to have my child learn from this, then I can't scare them with my fear because mm-hmm. they're not learning either. And it's a it's such a huge process, but whether or not we like to believe it and whether or not a teenager will ever admit it to you, they're watching us and they're listening to us and we are a massive influence in their lives. And if we treat them with disdain or disregard or we use punishment as retribution or we rule with fear, then what they're learning is that that's normal. Mm-hmm. 
And if we can then be honest, because as you say, they are watching us. If we can be honest, if we have a knee-jerk reaction and then we catch it, if we can express that, yeah. what a great lesson that is to share. Yeah, absolutely. Um, apologies, I've found, are one of the most powerful things that I can use with my kids. You know, I can come back to them and say, um, I'm so sorry. I should not have said that. I should not have, you know, threatened that. I should not have, you know, here's here's what was happening. Not an excuse, but here was the context in which I was operating. And I apologize. And then how do we move forward? And that, for my girls, has been so incredibly powerful as a way to maintain relationship with them because it isn't this power differential, right? I'm admitting, yep, I messed up. Yes. And there should be no shame in doing that for any of us because we're on this life journey. Right. It's a process. We're not going to arrive and say, okay, I've got it all. Type yep. thing, right? No, there's no. And I think the beautiful thing about that is if we can be that way, then we're giving them permission to be that way too. Because what I'm saying when I'm apologizing to them is I wish I'd, I know better. I wish I had done better. But now that I've had this experience, it's going to help me be better in the future. And and then they can see the next time they mess up and they're going to. Yes. <laughs> that it's a learning experience. It's not an end point. And I think that that's really, really powerful because a lot of times, especially in education, we do that to kids. It's like, oh, well, you get one shot to take that test. Well, you screwed up. Sorry. Done. That's not life. Right. It's not. But we're giving them this illusion that all your eggs have to be in that one basket. You know, you have to apply to these schools. And if you don't get into them, sorry, your life is over. That's not true. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. And and being able to nurture with them along this way, what really might be what excites them in life and nurture that mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, well, no, here's where the great jobs are. This is where you have to go or this is the best school. Right. Maybe that's really not where their heart is. Right. Exactly. And I think that that's another there's a whole lesson in the book around helping kids identify what their values and passions are, because I think we don't let them do that. Um, I wrote an article for Seattle's Parent Map a few months ago about why I let my kids quit things when they were little. I let my oldest daughter quit gymnastics, even though she was absolutely phenomenal at it and she had a natural talent for it. Um, I let my youngest daughter quit her guitar lessons, um, even though it was something that she had a natural talent for and she was amazing at um, and I think, first of all, that was a lesson in, guess what? You can pick this up again in three or four or 10 or 15 years if you feel like it. It's not, this is not the end of the road. But it was also honoring who they are as people and what was important to them at the time. And I think we, we don't do that with kids enough. We don't say to them, you can be the architect of your own education. You, there is no one path to go. You know, and so I'll say my youngest daughter, who I was very sad when she stopped taking guitar lessons, but she's now a senior in high school doing full time running start. And she has released two albums worth of music on Spotify with no guitar in them at all. But, you know, 
written the songs and the lyrics and produced them and recorded them in my basement, you know. So had I forced her to continue along that one path, what she would have learned is that I think I know better than she does who she is. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the only path for me. And so there's, you know, like I said, there's a huge, there's a whole lesson in One Teenager at a Time about how do we ask kids the questions? How do we let them ask themselves the questions of what lights me on fire? What am I excited about? What is it about this thing that's thrilling to me? Instead of us saying to them, you know, you got to get this rowing scholarship to college so you can't quit crew. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And and look at that. Uh, There's, you know, we can only theorize, but you may have squashed her music passion, but she found that it came out in a different way because here she is really excelling at it and having, I imagine, a great deal of fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's, And that's the other thing we talk about is if when it stops being fun, stop doing it. Honestly. I mean, if, if it's something that used to light you up and it doesn't anymore – at, you know, figure out that's part of the self-awareness piece. Ask yourself, why isn't it fun anymore? Is it not fun because there are all these other people in my life who are putting pressure on me to do it a certain way? Or is it that I was doing it for these reasons and now that's not important to me anymore? Or, you know, I, those are skills that everybody's going to need in their life mm-hmm. to help navigate, you know, Everything, which relationships they choose to be in, where they choose to live, what they choose to do for their career and their free time. We can't ask ourselves the question, what is it that I want? And actually cultivate a clear answer. Then the chances that we're going to be happy, productive members of our community are pretty low. Right. And what is so beautiful about how you have shared uh, all of this, actually, Carrie, but in talking about the experience with your daughters and, you know, what they chose to do and where they chose to stop doing something, uh, using story is really quite central to uh, the self-project, to the book. And we it's a way of really empowering us. It is. And it's also a way of opening the door to that curiosity because the human brain is wired for story. Um, you know, before we had written tradition, we had oral tradition, and there are many, many cultures who still rely mostly on oral tradition. And I, you know, part of the compelling thing about that is that our brains like a puzzle, and they want something, they want that puzzle to be put together. And so if you can lead with story with people, you're creating empathy. Because people can relate, even if they can't relate to your whole story, they can relate to part of it. And then it sparks that part of our brain that goes, wait a minute, I need to know what this means. What's the context for this? How does this play out in my life? And it becomes this puzzle that we have to solve. And then we're hooked, right? We're hooked into examining it and exploring it. Whereas if I just give you, you know, something on paper that's just 17 rows of numbers that you need to put together in some form or fashion. That's not compelling. No. Maybe one person out of a class of 25 or 30 is going to go, wow. But what about the others? How are we meeting what is important to them? Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Well, I feel that you are sparking this for all of us <laughs> and giving us such a an a great opportunity for one, but really I'm going to say an easy way because with the book, with the self project that is online, we can check out, use it within our family, use it within a community, hopefully bring it to the school. I think maybe as that need, what is it like a tipping point where the demand grows mm-hmm. to a certain level, it's going to have to happen. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, we, we're wired to be in community. We are wired to be in relationship with one another. And I think we're struggling to find ways to do that. Um, I think if we can teach this generation of kids how to be in relationship with each other in healthy ways and how to get comfortable with having conversations about really difficult subjects, then we're on our way to creating you know, stronger, more resilient communities because that's who we are, whether we like it or not. Yes, exactly. And as you mentioned in the context of the book, you know, meeting the teenagers, meeting the youth right where they are, it's it's true for us at any age. Meet the person where they are Mm -hmm. and really build that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of teenagers' lives are, you know, the messages that they get pretty much all day long every day are, here's what you're not good enough at yet. Here's where you need to be better. And I think, you know, being able to look at teenagers and and recognize them as experts on their own lives, it goes a long way toward creating self-worth for them and building trusting relationships because they are amazing, amazing human beings and understanding what it is that they're trying to navigate and juggle all at the same time is pretty amazing. It lets them know that we see them. Yes. So to build upon that, get a copy of the book. (laughs) Please, go ahead and get a copy of the book. Yes. So (laughs) check it out, uh, finding it online or at your favorite bookstore, brick and mortar, or online at your website. Yes. Yeah. I I have links to it on the website, theselfproject.com. So click through. Um, I also have links to it on the Facebook page for the self project as well. So yes, it's not hard to find. (laughs) That's a good thing. (laughs) Make it easy for us to find the book and then move through the work. Yes, absolutely. And feedback is always welcome too. I love hearing from people what worked and what didn't. So, you know, find the website or find the Facebook page and let me know you know, hey, here's what happened when we talked about this, or gosh, it would be really cool if there was something that addressed, you know, this other thing. Because I'm always writing. Teenagers are my favorite humans. So I'm always working with them and, you know, trying to figure out what resonates with them. So So. great. So perfect. Well, Carrie O'Driscoll, it's been wonderful to have you join us this morning. I am just so in awe of the work you're doing. It's such important work for all of us, for our world. So many thanks. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Carrie O'Driscoll and Sunday Morning Magazine with Dr. Shad Helmstetter. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I'll get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, 
Find the podcast on our Warm 106.9 webpage. Click on the on-air tab, then the podcast tab, and look for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of all things positive and uplifting. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.